Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, I remember as a child attending Vacation Bible School before it was the big themed production that it is today. Of course, VBS today is, is I mean, I love Vacation Bible School, but it's, it's over the top, right? I mean, decorations and theme songs and, and dances and, and all those sort of things, or, or motions. I can't say dances. It's, it's motions, all those things. Um, this was before it was the big production that it is today. And I remember a friend invited me, um, and... That was the, the first time that I'd ever been to Vacation Bible School. It was, I remember sitting in the old sanctuary over at Oakwood before they built the big sanctuary that they've got today. And, and the place was packed with kids. I remember kind of, I don't remember, I don't remember how it was laid out, but I remember sitting in the row and there were kids all in front of me. And, and I remember that in, during, that, uh, during that opening ceremony that they sang Onward Christian Soldiers as, uh, as kind of the, the, the song that, that kicked everything off. And, and, I don't know why that song stuck out to me. I don't remember any other song that we sung in that whole process. And I don't, I, I don't know. There are some VBS songs that kind of are like earworms that stick in your ear. And, and you know some of those if you've been in, in VBS lately. Uh, this was an earworm for me. And I remember, I didn't go to church much, but I remember singing Onward Christian Soldiers. I don't remember why it stuck out so much to me. But singing that song made me realize something very important. These folks were serious. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. Like, whoa, right? I mean, you know, the, the, some of the modern praise and worship music that, that gets sung today, I appreciate that Foster doesn't sing this, but some of it is, uh, some of it's a little sappy. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, calling them love songs to Jesus. And, uh, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend songs is kind of how, how I, I like it to describe some of them. But, but man, marching as to war? Like, we're going to go, are we going to go do arts and crafts or are we going to take up arms and go to the streets? Which is good, what's going to happen here? These folks were serious. Now, I didn't realize it at the time, but that vacation Bible school, that's when the Lord started trying to enlist me into, uh, into this army that we call the church. Of course, that song's been kind of a staple in churches for over 100 years, but it's not only been used in in church worship, it's also been used in a great variety of other places as well. One of the most significant places that the church, that, that song has been sung was in a secret meeting in 1941 between FDR and Winston Churchill. They met in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean aboard the HMC Prince of Wales, and during that meeting they signed the Atlantic Charter. Uh, during that meeting, a worship service was conducted, and there are YouTube videos. It, it wasn't a YouTube video at the time. It's since been converted into YouTube videos. <laughs> but you can actually go and, and watch clips of this worship service there on, the, there on the deck of the ship in which they were meeting. And they sung Onward Christian Soldiers, the British and the, and the American troops that were, that were there on the ship, and, and there were clergy in robes. I mean, it was quite a sight to see there in black and white, and you could just kind of hear the old, the old crackly radio broadcast as they were recording it. Churchill picked all the music, and he chose Onward Christian Soldiers. And in a radio broadcast, he explained his choice. He said, we sang Onward Christian Soldiers indeed. I guess I should do this with a British accent, but I'll spare you. Um, indeed, and I felt that this was no vain presumption, but that we had the right to feel that we were serving a cause for the sake of which a trumpet had sounded from on high, 
And when I looked upon that dently packed congregation of fighting men of the same language, of the same faith, and of the same fundamental laws, of the same ideals, it swept across me that here was the only hope, but also the sure hope of saving the world from measureless degradation. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. Now, of course, we know that not all those men that were on the ship that day were Christians, but they were certainly all soldiers ready to go and fight. Now, again, some have been uncomfortable with the military themes of, of that particular song and, and how it's been used in, in nation versus state sort of opportunities. But it's important to note that the Bible does contain a great deal of warfare imagery. For instance, Paul in the book of Ephesians tells us to take on the, the armor of God, which is clearly a, a battle-themed sort of image. And we certainly understand that we should not conflate the purposes and goals of the state with the purposes and goals of the church, especially in regards to war. But the hymn is a reminder for us as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ that we need to follow Paul's instructions as he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of of many witnesses. We as Jesus followers are to fight the good fight of the faith. There is at least in that hymn a reminder of the simple fact that there is, there is a war that's going on. Not with, not with hot ammo, not between tanks and ships and airplanes, but there, there is a war going on. The Bible makes it very clear that our battle in this war is not against flesh and blood. The battle is spiritual, even though it takes place in a very physical reality. And how we view the world and how we view the war that is raging in the world will vastly determine how we choose to, quote-unquote, fight the battle. So as we as the church consider our work from the standpoint of the battle, it's important that we try to understand some of the enemy's tactics, Good for us to know how our enemy chooses to fight. And Acts chapter 13 takes us deep into the first century mission field. Our attention here turns back to Paul, what we commonly call the first missionary journey. And we're clearly dealing with the mission field, and we need to understand something about the mission field. The mission field is enemy territory. You're talking about a place where the enemy has had rule. Strongholds are real. And guess what happens when you try to breach strongholds? You need to be prepared to deal with the opposition that is guaranteed to come. I see my home as a stronghold for my family. And if someone tries to breach my home unwelcome, they have to be prepared to deal with the consequences of such an action. Breaching strongholds is not always safe. And we see that here in Acts chapter 13 as Paul and Barnabas prepare to breach strongholds of the enemy. I would ask you to turn your attention now to Acts chapter 13. As we read the first few verses of the chapter, we'll be considering the whole chapter, but we'll only read publicly the first couple of verses here. So I invite you to stand with me as we read from Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. 
and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they pronounced the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius uh, Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You, son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he had saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. God, grateful we are for your word, for the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and John Mark. We are thankful for the things we can learn from the scriptures here. Thank you for exposing to us the tactics of the enemy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. The very first missionary journey of the church begins with a trip to Cyprus. Now, there is this sense in our world today who think missions always have to be some impoverished third world countries. Uh, however, the very first mission trip that the church takes here actually begins with a trip to what is the equivalent of a first century resort area. Uh, that's what Cyprus was. It wasn't a, a super poor, impoverished country. It was actually a destination location. It's like going on a mission trip to, to Destin. I mean, uh, you know, it's like going to the beach or something. Uh, a dear friend and mentor of mine was a missionary in Europe for 25 years. He's got stunning pictures while he was on the mission field of going skiing in the Alps and, and, and seeing all the sights of, of, of that, that beautiful side of Europe that we, uh, we see in, in, in books and things. And I always asked him if he felt guilty sitting next to missionaries who had to go live in like dirt houses in Africa. I mean, he gets to live in Europe and eat fine food and all those sort of things. And then there's other missionaries that we send out who, who get sent to the modern equivalent of the sticks. The ancient world regarded Cyprus like we might consider the Bahamas or the Virgin Islands. It's a place you go on vacation. It's a destination. One commentator described it as, as Happy Isle. That's probably sell a lot of airplane tickets to Happy Isle because they had lots of resources, gorgeous climates. I've never been to Cyprus today, but I imagine it would probably be very similar. But don't forget this. This is very important for us to keep in mind. Those people living in prosperity can be just as lost as the people who are living in poverty. And many times, usually, typically speaking, reaching those people in prosperity is perhaps even more difficult than reaching those folks who live in poverty. This gets to the heart of what Jesus was saying when he was talking about getting a camel through the eye of the needle. It's, it's hard to reach a, a man's heart when he's got all of his earthly needs in check. You know, we're living in a season today where the enemy has strongholds all around us. That's because the mission field doesn't always require an airplane. Truth be told, our church is located in the heart of enemy territory. 
And, and perhaps what's most stunning about that is that we here in Flintstone, we live in the shadow of what is known as the most churched city in America. Chattanooga, Tennessee is the most church city in the United States. And how'd they figure that out? They counted how many people live here and how many churches are here. And man, there's a lot of churches around. What's the old saying? You can't sling a dead cat in a circle without hitting something. I mean, it's like that with churches. I mean, they're everywhere. I mean, they're everywhere. And it's important for us to remember, though, that church buildings don't change hearts. You can have more church buildings than you have rooftops. And it doesn't matter. Church buildings do not change hearts hearts. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that is that which changes the hearts of man. So as we consider some of the tactics of our enemy as we engage in this spiritual battle, let us remember that these tactics that were present here in Acts chapter 13 are just as prevalent in our own community, in our own day and time, just like they were on Happy Isle there in the first century. The first type of tactic we see here are those who are hostile to the things of God. The, the first hostile force that Paul encounters in Cyprus is, is this magician who's got a name that sounds sort of familiar, Bar-Jesus. Uh, he had likely stolen Jesus' name because he had heard things about Jesus. He's a magician, is, goes by Elymas. He must have been some sort of an advisor to the proconsul there, the leader in that community. I don't know if you heard, but recently uh, Christ Church, a large city in New Zealand, they fired their city wizard. Not making it up, Christ Church New Zealand had a wizard on their city payroll. Now again, I don't know if it was Harry Potter, I don't know if it was Gandalf, or, or reaching way back, Oscar Diggs, but they had a wizard on payroll, a part-time city wizard, and he looked the part. He looked like Dumbledore, Gandalf, I mean, he looked the part for a city wizard. I imagine that that's what this guy was. He was the city wizard. He was the guy who was there to do the hocus pocus and to, not the hokey pokey, the hocus pocus. It's very different. He was there to, to, to kind of make sure the curses stayed away and the bad omens and the bad lucks. He was there to provide some sort, of, some sort of blessing to those under his care. But I believe this guy, we understand that he paints a particular kind of picture of reality for us today. Because there are those forces that exist today who are overt enemies of the gospel. They want nothing to do with the church, nothing to do with the gospel, and quite honestly, they're not very passive about it. These folks get a lot of media attention today. Paul described them in Philippians chapter 3. He says in verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. We know those people exist today. Charles Spurgeon, preaching in 1884 at his church there in London, described enemies of the cross in this way. He said, but alas, multitudes of men do not want holiness. They want their harlots. They want their wine. They want their carnivals of vice. They want their selfishness. And they want everything that Christ does not give. So they cry, not this man, but Barabbas. And they make the awful choice of sin as they neglect the Lord. These are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Did you hear what he said? They want everything that Christ does not give. You think about that today. And as a result, they want nothing to do with the gospel. They want nothing to do with the church. 
And the more notorious of the bunch actually worked to undermine the church and undermine her work. The latest round of attacks are coming from unsurprising sources. There are louder and louder voices in our culture today decrying evangelism and missions. Can you imagine living in a world where missions is seen as an enemy? Where Americans, American Christians, taking our abundant resources and going to somewhere in Africa that's suffering with, with dirty water. And we're able to go and help provide clean water and provide those resources to introduce people to the gospel. Yet more and more people are seeing that through lenses that are not Christian. In our brave new world, these efforts at proselytizing are seen as oppressors imposing their view on the oppressed. Meaning that as Christians going to share the gospel with people who are lost, that's now being seen and colored as some sort of offensive oppression. Missions in particular has been scrutinized by proponents of critical race theory. In an opinion piece for religion news services, I ran across this quote. Listen to this. Missionaries and colonizers often work hand in hand, leading to genocide, colonization, and assimilation done in the name of Jesus. People are thinking this way today, that Christian missions, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, is now being seen as some sort of hostile act of us trying to impose our version of, of Americanism on people. But we as Christians, regardless of, our, of, our, of the, ple- the flag to which we pledge, are called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it doesn't matter if we pledge to the stars and stripes or if we pledge to the Jamaican flag or the Mexican flag or the Canadian flag. We are called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, the end. That is our call. That is our task. You've probably seen this bumper sticker before on cars. I love it. You ever been tempted just to bump into them just a little bit just to see how much they want to coexist? Well, you know, Jesus loves you, right? Here's the thing. There's no such thing as this, right? This this doesn't exist. Coexist doesn't exist because we don't believe in coexisting, right? I mean, that's not what we believe in. I don't know what all those symbols are. I mean, I could figure it out pretty quickly. But, But that cross at the end, listen to me, it... No pun intended. Please don't take this the wrong way. It's the only word that works. It trumps the rest. Right? We believe that, right? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ trumps the rest. And so Jesus is better than Muhammad. Jesus is better than any religious leader out of any Eastern religion. Jesus is better than, uh, you got Satan, you got a pentagram there. He's clearly better than that. I mean, Jesus is better than all these things, right? So if Jesus is better, then how are we as the, gospel, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ not trying to point people to Jesus? That's our goal. That's our calling. And listen to this. Don't believe for a second the enemies of the cross don't believe in coexisting either. They don't believe in that. Of course, these philosophical and ideological concepts were not present there when Paul went to Cyprus and Barnabas and Paul were preaching, but there was their own brand of hostility. And I love how Paul handled the attack. He handled it with boldness. There was no attempt to try to skirt the issue. With Holy Spirit-powered discernment, Paul called out this bar Jesus. He said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? I don't advise you hitting the coexist bumper sticker and pulling that quote out okay what's the result of his honesty 
didn't try to skirt the issue, didn't try to pretend it wasn't real, what happened? That leader, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, the Bible tells us that he became a follower of Jesus when he saw everything transpire. Because he didn't try to hide from the truth. And so that proconsul believed, and who knows how many came to faith under his witness. So that's one strategy the enemy uses, those, those overt, hostile enemies of the gospel. But I think there's another more subtle attack that the enemy uses, and we might call that undercommitment and internal strife. The reality of undercommitted and uncommitted Christians is, is, is real everywhere we look today. But we also can see how that is combined with internal strife in the body. And there's, there's drama brewing in Acts chapter 13. What's the drama? Well, we read about in verse 13 that the first mission team actually shrunk. They set out with a certain number of people. And in verse 13, we find out that the team actually shrunk. We find out that, that John Mark left the team. Now, I've been in situations where somebody's gotten sick in mission trips. They've had to go home. Been in those situations where something transpires and the mission team shrinks. It appears that this is a little more sinister than that. It doesn't look like John Mark got sick. As a matter of fact, if you look over at Acts chapter 15, verse 37, we find out that whatever caused John Mark to leave the mission field that day, it must have been a pretty serious issue. It couldn't have been because of illness or, or a legitimate issue because we're left to speculate, but the likelihood is very high here that he was young and the pressure was too great. I mean, there's a lot going on here. Some have even speculated that he had Jewish roots, which caused him to have issue being in Gentile lands. But the bottom line is this. He deserted his post at a time when he was needed. And the consequence of this action were not insignificant. Over in chapter 15, it gets explained a little bit more. We find out that this situation with John Mark actually led to a significant disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. To the point that they could not go on the mission field together. They actually had to create two different teams and part ways. Unable to minister together. I think this is one of the more heartbreaking stories in the New Testament. Two godly men like Paul and Barnabas that could not agree on how to handle John Mark. What happened to John Mark? But this story reminds us that these are real men with real issues. And they serve both as a positive example for us. Go and do likewise, right? But they also serve as negative examples. Don't make the same mistakes that we did. And what happens here is clearly a, a mistake. Now, God uses it and God works it out. Ultimately, we find that reconciliation takes place because in the last letter that Paul writes, 2 Timothy in, in chapter 4, we find out that he actually asked for John Mark to come visit him in prison. And so he was angry at John Mark. But at some point in time over the course of ministry, he asks for John Mark to come back. All this is to remind us that while we have very real enemies of the gospel outside, there are very real distractions that take place on the inside. Very real situations that develop. And the church is going to have a very difficult time doing her job whenever there is this kind of internal strife within the body. People who can't serve together combined with people who won't serve at all. It makes it very difficult to do the task. To continue the military analogy, all the biblical analogies of the church point to us being an elite strike force, right? 
We are the body of Christ. All the parts of the body working together in unison to accomplish the mission. All these, all these images of us working together. We're under the command of our king. But in reality, too many times we're more like the Midianites that Gideon faced. Remember what happened last week with the Midianites in Foster's kids, kids sermon? It wasn't the armies of Israel that was the problem. They started fighting each other and killing each other. They had a, a bigger enemy to face, but they were too busy fighting ourselves. And I think so many times in church, we're so busy swinging the swords at each other that the enemies never even have to engage us. So let us beware that we do not find ourselves inadvertently being used by the enemy for our own defeat. The third tactic we see, and it skips down throughout the rest of chapter 13, is, um, is this. There are those who would seek to corrupt and contradict the truth. A huge portion of chapter 13 is actually a, a sermon that Paul preaches there in Antioch. Not the Antioch they got sent from, but another like Antioch, Antioch, like New Antioch type thing. And so verses 16 through 41 is Paul's sermon. And here's the thing. There are those in this, in this, in this uh, chapter who want to corrupt and contradict the truth. Their presence there doesn't go unnoticed. You actually find over in verse 45 that Jewish leaders began to actively contradict Paul. You find down in verse 50, the Jews incited a particular group of women of high standing, leading men of the city. They actually stir them up to persecute Paul and Barnabas, drove them out. Here's the thing. All it takes to mess up our calling is a subtle change in the gospel. Just a subtle change. It's so, so significant that Paul actually would say to the Galatians that if anybody preaches a gospel contrary to the one that I proclaim to you, let him be condemned. We see this today happening all around us. It happens particularly with the prosperity gospel preachers. Right? I mean... It's all baptized in church language, you know. It's all baptized in, in all, the, all the images of, of Christian religion. Many of our inner-city black churches have become sick bastions of this perverse theology. I had a dear friend who was in prison. I, I, he became my friend after he got out of prison, so I didn't meet him in prison. So I'll just clear, clear that up. Had a dear friend that, uh, that came to me when he got out of prison, and, and he was trying to get his life pointed out. He, he got a little hint of what it meant to be a Christian when he was in prison. He got out, and he really wanted to try to walk with the Lord. And so we met, and we talked. We, I, I discipled him and, and tried, to, tried to help him figure out what it meant to, to follow Jesus. And he got a wild hair. He had a, he had a relative who was involved in this, this kind of inner-city black prosperity movement. And he got a wild hair that, that he wanted to go into ministry. And he went and go talk to this relative, and, and his relative really kind of helped him become, this, uh, become a quote-unquote preacher. And he, he left behind kind of the discipleship that we were doing and went to go pursue something different. It was really disappointing. And he called one day. He said, he said, Pastor, I want you to come to my church and hear me preach. It's like, he said, this will be the first time I've preached, and I'd I really love for you to be in the room. And it was almost like a preaching coming out party. Kid you not. So I'm sitting there in this, uh, in this black church over, over near, uh, near Augusta, and he stands up and he preaches, and it was your, your typical black sermon. I mean, you, you kind of can fill in the blanks there. And um, the lady who was the, the pastor of the church that he was preaching in, she stood up and, and she proceeded to, um, she asked everybody in the church to, to, to donate money. 
and, uh, and they passed the offering plates and everything. Then they brought the, the offering plates up to the altar, and they dumped all the money out on the altar up here. And then she asked all the men of God in the room to come up and to stretch out their hands over the offering. That was when my, that was when my uh, you know, the hair started standing up on my arms like, uh, like no, we ain't doing this. And all the men of God were supposed to go up and stretch their hands out over the offering. And, and, um, and she, started, she started praying. And I, I sat there. She made eye contact with me. And she said, she said, Pastor, why don't you come on up and join us? And I said, uh, I'm not doing it. And uh, she started praying, praying that all the seeds that were sown would uh, be reflected in, in people's pockets. And started praying that every dollar that was given would be would be would be would would be multiplied in people's pockets. And it was this long drawn out prayer, and people were getting excited about. It. And I thought these folks were really—I mean, they really believed that, and that they gave their last dollar. That somehow or another, that last dollar would be would be would be blown up in their pockets in some way or another. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't return things a thousandfold, but it's not like the prosperity gospels preach. All it takes is a simple corruption of the message. Several years ago, we sent mission teams to Central Mexico, and Central Mexico was eat up with a weird version of the Catholic Church. And you would walk into these villages, and there'd be this huge cathedral that was there in the village, and there'd be a priest, and there'd be all the language of the church, all the language of the gospel, but it wasn't real. And I'll never forget, we had that team, and they were meeting in this little, this little hut, and they were showing the Jesus film. You know, it's not, it's not the best movie in the world, but it's a great gospel presentation. They were showing the Jesus film, and the Catholic priest in the village came down and started throwing rocks at the house where they were showing the Jesus film. And the team that was there, was, they were scared because it wasn't like they were throwing pea gravels. I mean, they were throwing rocks. You know, there was a very real sense that, that they were being persecuted by somebody who, again, on paper, in appearance, it looked to be the real thing. But it was just a simple corruption, a simple attempt to contradict the message. On the surface, Jesus is used. Things look churchy. Bibles are present. But the message is corrupt from the truth. And we see that here as Paul is dealing with these people who are trying to simply contradict him. The church today has to be able to identify those messages that contradict or corrupt the true gospel message. And now everybody's a preacher. Everybody's got a YouTube channel. You can literally go sit today and you can watch church services from all over the country. You could spend all day Sunday and then some watching videos from anywhere and everywhere. And not all of them are solid. Not all of them are gospel. Not all of them are true. Here's the thing. We have to know what we're up against today. The Apostle Paul experienced it. We know that we are going to experience it as well. We are blessed today in the sense that we live in a world where we can communicate the gospel in ways that previous generations never could. We can literally pack shoeboxes with, with, with toys and deflated soccer balls. We can send those shoeboxes to the ends of the earth, and there's a church there that can take those shoeboxes and make sure that people hear the true gospel message as a result of these simple shoeboxes. This would have been unimaginable 50 years ago. But now the logistics and the, the ability is in place for us to be able to do this, and, and millions of these things are going to go across the world in the next few months. And millions of people are going to hear the true gospel message because of something as simple as a shoebox. 
The internet has made it possible where people in the middle of, of China can't go to church, but if they can figure out a VPN and be able to bypass the, the censors in China, they can actually hear gospel messages and gospel truth. Between podcasts and literature and YouTube channels and videos and this, that, and the other, there's so many different ways that people can hear the gospel today. We are blessed in that sense, unlike any generation before. But inasmuch as we here in this church can convey truth to whoever's watching online, understand this, there's plenty of voices out there that are working just as hard to corrupt the truth. And we have to make sure that we know the difference. We have to be aware. It is a battle that we're fighting, and our enemy wants nothing more than to distract us from our task and destroy our testimony. Would you pray with me, please? God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the privilege we have to worship. I thank you, God, for the tools that you give us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Lord, we understand that, that we are living in, in amazing times where there are just these, these, these handful of shoeboxes that are going to multiply this week as more people fill their boxes. We understand that, that, that even now, Lord, that there's 12, 15, 20 kids and their families that are going to be impacted right now by just what's sitting here on stage. And that, again, Lord, multiply that by all the churches that participate here and abroad. It's stunning to think. At the same time, Lord, we look around our own community and we understand that there is lostness that is rampant in our midst. Our kids go to school with it. We go to work with it. Every day we encounter it. So, Lord, may we be faithful with our testimony, pointing people to the to the God who saved us, pointing people to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be mindful of the subtle attacks that we experience, whether it be through those overt enemies of the gospel, those enemies of the cross that Paul warned us about, those people who want everything that you don't give, or maybe it's even the, that own internal strife that, that perhaps we're even a part of that we need to repent of. Lord, maybe it's those simple corruptions that we allow to take place. Whatever it is, God, may we be faithful to, to the truth. May we be faithful to our own relationships within the body of Christ. May we be faithful as we seek to, uh, to even point the enemies of the gospel to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, again, we're thankful for your word. We pray as we put it to work in our day-to-day -day lives that you'll find us faithful. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.